Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast. We're in Douglas, Arizona. Going to be crossing into Agua Prieta, Mexico tomorrow to hunt for coos deer or cows deer or what all pronunciations exist out there. Coos, coos, cows. I don't like cows. Cows, cows, coos, cows, and cows. So don't now go and tell, waste your time telling me that it's not actually coos deer. Chris Denham, and I've said this before. Chris Denham said he's, you know, he's spent, I think he's probably written more pages and published more pages of information about this animal than probably any man alive. And he said that he will call them coos deer till the day he dies. Fighting words. I agree. For sure. I'm here with uh, Giannis Putellis, maker of the famous hunt to eat t-shirts how's that going yanni great steve thanks um Giannis was just telling us before we started about how all the money he's made on hunt to eat t-shirts jay scott who's here with us noticed that Giannis actually has money falling out of his pocket there's a little small pile of it here on the so hotel. If, if you ever are fixing to get a hunt to eat t-shirt do it now because he's almost made so much money he's going to be getting out of the business <laughs> <laughs> for our other two guests here Giannis needs to make a shirt that says hunt to measure because uh jay scott and dark colburn here and these guys are the guys that find the biggest critters running around in the mountains they just go and look real quiet and patient and find them and um we're crossing tomorrow to go hunt in Mexico, but we're not actually hunting together. You guys have clients, yep. multiple clients going down. And we're kind of riding on the um, Dar Colburn, J. Scott coattails by getting some access onto a place to go hunt. But you guys got it. What's how you, what, January's, right? You spend all January down here hunting coos deer? Yeah, typically January during the rut. What's your annual schedule like with guiding? Uh, starts in September usually for elk, uh, September elk and then sheep. We start scouting in November and hunt sheep in December and then pretty much January's coos deer down in Mexico. And you guys, you don't, like Jay, you're the only one, you don't, you don't do turkey anymore, right, Dar? 
Uh, well, I'm back in this year. <laughs> oh, really? So I don't know one you, year out, you couldn't take it. I don't know if you follow turkeys at all, but there's something kind of interesting where there's in North, like in the New World, you get two kinds of turkeys. You got just the regular American wild turkey, and then you have a thing called the oscillated turkey, which lives in Central America. Um, extreme southern north america but then you got like the regular old turkey we all know about the regular old turkey we all know about is divided into five what we've traditionally called subspecies though a lot of geneticists argue that that's a bunch of malarkey and that they're not legitimate subspecies but you have the eastern wild turkey which is native to the eastern u.s then you have the uh osceola which is in the southern half of the Florida panhandle. And that one is the one that geneticists say is the least legitimate subspecies because there's sort of this arbitrary line which happens to exist like around Orlando where everything north of that line is the eastern wild turkey. Everything south of that line is an Osceola. And a turkey could kind of walk back and forth from being an eastern to an Osceola throughout the day. There are some morphological differences, like some coloration stuff, but basically it's kind of like you know what it is based on where you shot it. Then you got, uh, what, Rio Grande's, Miriam's, which are from the south southwestern U.S. and Texas and elsewhere. Um, then the fifth is the kind of coolest one, in my opinion, the Goulds. It's hard to find a Goulds. There's some Goulds tags in here in Arizona. I put in for I'm never drawing them. Um, very limited. But most guys that want to get, what are you looking at me for? I was just wondering, is that the only uh, U.S. state New that Mexico. has a, New Mexico, New Mexico yeah, has a couple. a couple? A few, not yeah. many. Now, if you pay attention to such things, there's a, there's a thing called uh, the Grand Slam. I have a turkey Grand Slam in that I have killed all five kinds of turkeys. Royal Slam. Royal Slam. And you have the world slam. No, too. I don't have the world slam because I never killed an oscillator. Oh, okay. I have the... Tur- what, what kind of slam do I have? Royal. Okay. A grand slam is a dude who kills four. The ones... Yeah, four. The four main subspecies of turkeys are the four most readily available wild turkeys. I realize this is some major turkey geek stuff, but <laughs> the royal slam is when you pick up the goulds. People who are into turkeys... Usually, I, I'm pulling this out of my ass. 75% of the guys that need one more turkey to get a Royal Slam need a Goulds. 25% of the guys that need one more turkey to get a Royal Slam need an Osceola. I'm pulling it out of my ass. I agree. But it's probably close. Somewhere around there. Yeah. If you want to get a Goulds, uh, you know, you do a long shot draw. And it's like a desert turkey, you know? They live in like the Sky Island areas down in New Mexico. If you want to get a ghouls, you do a long shot draw and draw a tag. Or you call up uh, J. Scott and Dark Holborn. That's the only two ways, right? Well, my book, that's it. Because <laughs> these, guys, these guys spend a lot of time in Mexico, and they spend a lot of time scouting down there. Did you guys get into, interested in Mexico because of coos deer or because of turkeys? Coos deer. Yeah. And then you're like, holy shit, there's a lot of turkeys running yeah. around here. I have a funny story. 
just I know you go off on tangents, but just a quick tangent. I was down here. Why, why does why does the fact that I do <laughs> how's that relevant? <laughs> I don't know. Who's the host of this show? I'm going off on a tangent. I appreciate the warning. I, I was down here. I'm, I'm gonna sip. You know, I've always wanted to get straws so we could drink beer through straws, and it didn't make a funny noise. And so I'm gonna do that. Okay. And no one will notice because it doesn't make any noise. Quick tangent. I was down here scouting ranches uh, in a, in the the late summer, early fall, and was looking at a ranch and they were making charcoal and we come up to the to the the pit where they're making it and out walks the freaking guy from the show we filmed down here three years ago the guy that cooked with you on the, the charcoal the maker? charcoal yeah. guy same guy just doing a contract on another ranch yeah different ranch i mean 100 miles from there and so when i got, I got a picture of it with him Really? I was going to send it to you. Yeah, but that, it's the same that guy that's on the crazy show. crazy process, yeah. man. It's some thankless work. It's smoldering giant pits of charcoal. He remembered Dar. He Did was, he really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Put his arm around yeah, him. Yeah, it was funny. I was talking to these boys from National Wild Turkey Federation, and they were talking about when they were bringing, they were getting Goulds, out of, Goulds turkeys out of Mexico in order to do try to get them reestablished on native range in the United States. And they went down and struck a deal with a guy in Mexico. Um, that they wanted 20 turkeys. And he was supposed to establish these bait stations to catch turkeys. And they would go down and use uh, cannon traps. You know, shoot, it's like an explosive charge. It shoots a net out to catch birds. Because when they had originally were trying to do turkey reintroductions, you know, like turkeys got their dicks knocked in the dirt. Like there used to be turkeys and, you know, at the time of European contact, there's turkeys and, I don't know, 39 states or something like that. By the 1930s, they were mostly gone. You, could, you couldn't legally hunt them barely anywhere. South Carolina had a few. Um, they about got wiped off the planet. And they came back through just careful work, primarily by National Wild Turkey Federation and a bunch of state agencies. But anyway, they would do hatch-raised birds. But the hatch-raised birds, they don't live. They, they just get decimated by predators and weather. So they started realizing the only way to establish turkeys is to catch wild ones and move them. You can't raise them in a pen and let them go. So they started coming down to Mexico to catch these birds. And they paid. They struck a deal with this guy in Mexico to establish these base stations. And when he made the deal, he was excited to get the work, but he misunderstood the deal. He thought he was getting a set amount. And was real happy to do it, not knowing that he was getting that amount for each bird up to 20. So he's hauling 50-pound sacks of corn all over in the mountains. They come down and catch all these birds, and he thinks, I can't remember what it was, but he thinks he's getting like 100 bucks. But this dude was telling me I turned around and handed him the money, and he was off by, you know, a factor of 20. So he turns around and hands the guy $2,000. The guy wept. <laughs> That's wow. awesome. Yeah. He thought he was doing all that. He said, this guy's just happily packing around all this stuff. So that's how the, the goulds that came up here came up here. Um, what else about that? What I actually wanted to do is do some of our – a thing we do that's, that's, that's popular with listeners is we do uh, fan questions. It's good to have Jay and Dar here because they can weigh in on a bunch of these issues. And these are good talking points. This gives you a chance to kind of hit on a lot of things that are going around in the in the worlds of wildlife, hunting, fishing, on and on. Yeah, and you want to pick one out first? Yep. 
I like this one because you have a... Uh, now, is it one that Jay and Dar is going to be interested in or not? <laughs> you know, definitely. I think so. I think they can definitely weigh in on it because from talking to them over the last couple of days, they're kind of dealing with some of the stuff that I think we'll talk about from this question. The question is, it's, it's under the, uh, the heading of b- basic beginner advice. What hunting norms exist and how would a new hunter go about learning them? I'd like to hear your advice for the absolute beginner hunter, not equipment or scouting tips as much as the stuff most people learn while growing up hunting, like the unwritten rules of hunting public lands. For example, in my area, central North Carolina, we have lots of small tracts of public land. The squirrel season starts during deer season. Can I wander around looking for squirrels without ruining someone else's hunting? Do big game hunters take precedent? And I like that question because we just heard a story about this. We just heard a story up in Michigan. We were down in, no, in Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. We were in Kentucky, heard a story about Michigan. We're down in Kentucky hunting with a small game. I, I Giannis was said that uh, this guy we were with in Kentucky, his name's Kevin Weaver, that he is Murphy. to Kevin, sorry, Kevin Weaver's a gun maker. Kevin Murphy. Kevin Murphy is to squirrels what Neil deGrasse Tyson is to the cosmos. He's a squirrel man through and through, raises squirrel dogs, hunts squirrels. He was telling me that he left his home state of Kentucky and went up to hunt squirrels in Manistee National Forest in Michigan. He's out running his dogs and gets a bow hunter so pissed at him that the guy's following him around, yelling obscenities at him. I would have punched that guy in the face. That's my take on it. Public land, dude. Yeah. Why does a guy bow hunt deer have more say than someone else? I think there's things you can do. If you were to see a bow hunter in a tree, absolutely you have an obligation. Not an ob- yeah, you have an obligation, a moral obligation to work around him. But to say that you're not going to squirrel hunt because it's bow season, I think is ridiculous. Jay? I had a situation. I was uh, guiding an elk hunter and um here in central arizona and there were bulls bugling all around and we were kind of it was an afternoon hunt we were kind of going after our first bull all of a sudden you hear lion guys bear dogs well you can hunt bear it's a very liberal season it was right during the two-week archery elk season so what i would say is if you have an animal that you can hunt all the time or a very liberal season, maybe you ought to maybe not go when the guys only have, say, a two-week season. That's my take. I think it's a lot of people's takes. I just had this conversation with my friend Jared Fink in Wisconsin, and we were kicking around the idea of doing having Kevin Murphy from Kentucky come up to Wisconsin on farmland, which he would think he died and gone to heaven because the squirrels are there to sit and bark at you. The ones in Kentucky are smart. <laughs> Anyhow, I was saying, man, we ought to do it before uh, – Gun season. He's like, are you crazy? That's bow season. People aren't going to let you on their land hunting squirrels during bow season. So it's a common, yeah, I think a lot of people think that. Me, personally, what I don't think you should do is I don't think you should be able to hike or walk or ride a bike or anything like that. But I, Ever. I, <laughs> I personally would say, you know, it, it's up to the fish and game departments to maybe structure the hunts. We were up on the strip this year. There's uh, 13B in Arizona. It's a 10-day season, 14-day, no, 10. Nine or 10, yeah. 10-day season. Um, 
It's the most coveted Mid-November, tag for mule deer in the tag, world. I mean, one of the best. I thought mule deer it was the Henry tags. Mountains in Utah. Oh, it's, it's better than the yeah, Henry's. Yeah, and there's 70 deer tags in a huge area, but low deer density. You know, it's a, it's a. Yeah, you guys can go days without seeing a buck, yes, right? Yeah. Yes. So there's a 10 day window for this hunt. Well, it opens the same time as the chucker season, which is like a. I want to say it's almost three months, and we saw chucker hunters out there, and I mean. There's people that have waited 20 years for this tag. And why not push the chucker season back 10 days? And so there isn't even a conflict. I mean, that, well, that's my opinion. Well, one it might be this. 70 deer hunters, how many chucker hunters are there? How many field days? Maybe they're just trying to maximize people's opportunities to get out. I see where you're coming they, from. They definitely I see both are, sides of it. But, but what's 10 days later going to matter when... In 10 days, no one's going to be hunting deer. The place will be a ghost town, and they can run to from you know second week in, in November to February like they do. You know the fishing writer John Gierick? I think that's how he says yeah. his last name. He had a great line where he said there's two kinds of fishermen. There's the guys in your party, and then there's the assholes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like... It's just kind of it's kind of like that, and I think that. But you had the key that you said though, Dar. You said like it's up to the fishing game. I, like when people have questions like this about what's the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do. I think ninety percent of them can be answered by well, what's in the? What, let's take a look at what the hunting regulations yeah. say. Well, and it's because obviously- a lot of this stuff isn't really shouldn't really be guesswork. You look, you're like, am I allowed to be out hunting squirrels right now? I am. You're talking legal versus ethics. Yeah. So I'm saying yeah. like. I don't think that it's some guy's job who wants to do a little squirrel hunting and whatever. Let's say it's his kids got some time off school. He wants to do some squirrel hunting. I don't think it's his job to sit down and figure out, well, will my squirrel hunting negatively impact someone who supposedly is doing something more valuable by hunting deer? I think it's BS. I think if you got a problem with it, I think, like you said, maybe, maybe the state fish and game agency might look and try to uh, alleviate some of those conflicts and i think in a lot of places they do do that like for like wisconsin used to have a lot of regulations about being out small game hunting the day before deer season and all that kind of stuff all right i'm gonna bite on this one I mean you have so, more to say about it yeah so you're say saying your thing. i'm not even gonna reply you're saying if you can <laughs> kill what is a squirrel limit 15 20 squirrels anywhere from four to no limit Okay, as far four as I to know. no throughout limit. The, throughout the great country. So you can just roll out and start blasting, and a bow hunter or a guy in a deer stand's got one deer tag to shoot one deer. Now, I'm talking about Arizona, because Arizona... That you have to draw. You so know, it's, it's a draw, every one year deer, either. it's, you know, 20 years to get the tag, and so the chucker can go out and shoot 15 chucker for the next 90 days. My thing would be, put yourself in the position of whatever hunt that you might go and interfere. And if you feel like you would be interfering, then not do it. Wait till that season's over and then go knock yourself off. So you think knock that your, should be the, I said I wasn't going to reply, but, but Perfect. you think knock that should be the responsibility. Off. That's the responsibility of a guy who wants to do a little hunting with his kids. That's I, not his responsibility. No, I think I, it's the department, game yeah. fish department. Well, like, he can't be the guy no, who has to figure that out. Hunter, I want to move on. I think Hunter should <laughs> like, Put themselves in the other person's situation and say, "I'm not going to screw up their hunt. We can, we can, you know, squirrel hunt or chucker hunt anytime or quail hunt. Let's not go out then. Let's find something else to do, or let's go in an area where there's not a lot of deer and let's stay away from them and let's be courteous to the fellow hunter." How often 
do you cancel your planned activities on account of not wanting to inconvenience other people? Do you ever go to put your boat in a river and be like, you know, probably not a good day. A lot of shore fishermen today. I will tell you when I'm rowing down the river and by, I by see... That, you mean no. No, when I, see <laughs> people, when I see people on the side of the river, I go to the other side and go by them and don't even go through their water. So I would all say, right, all right, all right, all right. and I see a lot right. of other guides do it too. So, I mean, I, I, I think it's common to be com- you know, cur- courteous. courteous to your fellow man, fellow hunter. All right. so, I think that's a good point. Put yourself in the other person's shoes yeah. and what would you do? Well, you, two you, are like, you two are like as tight as, as my friend Doug says, you guys are like nuts on a dog. Whenever I see one of you, I see both of you. And the fact that one of you is saying it's an ethical issue and one of you is saying it's a legal issue shows that there, there is a place We're not where Jay ends and Dar begins. We're not twins. Or vice versa. All right. I don't know if we settled that or I not. I think we answered that. So there's the answer to your question. Specifically, <laughs> specifically for that person, though, I, I think that certainly uh, they – can go squirrel hunting during deer season especially Absolutely. in a place like north carolina where most likely the deer hunter has 10 deer tags they can fill you know Absolutely. but they're asking the question should i do it is it okay so they're actually thinking about it where a lot of people don't even think about other people they just go do what they want to do sure. so i think they're on yeah, the right track. across the board whether right. it's hunting or right not. definitely I want to do two total quickies, and I'm not even. I don't, I don't even want you guys to even open your mouth. <laughs> then we'll get the one that you, that you guys will have something good to say about. Uh, I feel like we even did this one before. Environmental stance. What's your take on environmental issues? Me, I'm a single issue kind of guy. I look at, yeah, clean air, clean water. What's good for wildlife? That's how I make up my mind about stuff. Opinion on BHA, I love uh, BHA. He's referring to backcountry hunters and anglers. Um, there's a handful of conservation groups that I belong to. This, this actually segues into another question I saw about how do you decide which groups to join. I support a handful of conservation organizations. There are many great ones. Um, I tend to pick the ones I like because they speak to things that I like a lot. They speak to animals that I like a lot. They have proven track records. Um, one of the groups that I support and advocate on behalf of is a group called Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Basically, I mean, they, they work on a lot of things, but one of the things they work on is access issues. Um, they try to preserve the integrity of wilderness areas and backcountry areas, and they try to open up access to lands for hunters and anglers. And they fight for stream access laws so that people can't lock you out of streams, so people can't lock you out of public ground that's surrounded by buffers. Um, they're a great organization. That's my opinion on them. Before we start a new subject, let's take a quick break. Here's one that, like, that I spent a lot of time thinking about and arguing with people about. And I don't really know, man. I'm kind of starting to... Let me tell you what it is first. Is hunter recruitment a scam? I think that the discussion on hunter recruitment and why it's a scam should be touched on in more depth. I've seen it destroy fishing off my coast. And now it's working its way into hunting. I assume he means he's seen fishing re- recruitment destroy fishing. Your brother, meaning my brother, is spot on. Hunter recruitment is, in essence, hanging your own noose. Yeah. Yeah, no. 
it's so complicated, dude. It would take forever to explain this, but here's the thing. I California, let's start let's talk about California for a minute. California has less than one less than one percent of Californians hunt. The national average is five or six percent of Americans hunt. Some states it gets up pretty high into ten and more. Some states it's much lower. California is less than one percent. I recently had a very high ranking person within California's fishing game department expressed to me off the record so I'm not going to tell you who he is he feels in 25 years it's going to be all gone in California it'll be done what happens is people who are opposed to hunting whittle away around the edges of hunting if you call up and ask Americans, do you support legal hunting, an overwhelming majority say they support legal hunting. The minute you start asking them specifics, like, what about hunting bears with dogs? Well, I don't know about that. What about hunting bears with dogs? Yeah, you know, they're kind of cute. Okay. The way people who are opposed to hunting work is they take specific things and bring them to ballot initiatives and other things and, and then bring them to votes or bring them in front of assemblies and, and, and shoot you down bit by bit by bit. Incrementalism. It's never going to be that someone says like, let's have a big referendum and vote yes or no on hunting. It'll never happen like that. It just happens piecemeal. Because on a national average, only 5% of Americans hunt. Our futures are being decided by 95% you know, like 95% of the voters going down there don't even hunt. They're just going down there and weighing in on what's their opinion about an activity they don't participate in. That's why I think that putting forth a strong message about hunting and advocating on behalf of hunting and explaining hunting and being honest about hunting is productive because it's necessary for the general public to see that hunting is a worthwhile, helpful activity. But that alone doesn't solve everything. You, there has to be some hunters out there who are out there doing it, demonstrating it, making it viable. Another thing to think about is this. Your state fishing game agencies, many of them are funded com- with, with no hard funding from the state. They're funded through license sales and permitting. The reason they get worried about hunter recruitment is they see their budgets for things like research, enforcement of existing laws, habitat improvement, shrinking when less licenses get sold. One of the main guys I argue about hunting recruitment about with, okay, who's adamantly opposed to hunter recruitment, I realized that one of the main guys I argue with hunter recruitment about, and he's adamantly opposed to hunter recruitment. All he cares about, he says, is how many trucks are at the trailhead. That's the only thing he cares about. I realized that last year he went on a trip that was a combo walleye deer, or I'm sorry, he went on a trip that was a combo walleye turkey trip. He's fishing walleye in a river that doesn't have a historic population of walleye, and walleye were brought in through a state fishery plan, state hatchery. And he's 
hunting turkeys that aren't native to that area and were brought in by the state game agency along with National Wild Turkey Federation. So two hunter-based initiatives put the turkeys on the ground, the walleyes in the river that he's fishing for, and then he draws a mountain goat tag in a mountain range that mountain goats weren't in until the state put them in that mountain range. So you have to think long and hard about what you really care about. And we're talking about minuscule amounts. But if you think it's gonna, that you're going to be the last guy hunting and it's going to be a Shangri-La, no one in the trailhead, and you're not just going to get fucked by voters and lack of funding for conservation efforts and wildlife research and enforcement, to put game wardens on the ground to stop poaching requires money. That money comes from like Pittman-Robertson stuff. It comes from duck stamps. It comes from buying hunting licenses. It comes from buying guns and ammo, excise taxes. Dudes out walking their dog aren't paying for the land. So, you know, there's a lot of like cutting off your dick to spite your balls, man. Anybody else have anything to add to that? No. I'll I'll add something really quick. My my oldest son is eighth grade, and it's scary though when I I because he hunts a lot, and I asked him in his and he knows most of the people in in his school sixth through eighth grade, and he could name, and I think there's probably a hundred to two hundred per grade level. He could name two kids that had ever hunted before. Yeah, it's scary. I mean, if scary. it wanted to be, if I had a crystal ball, and I could look into the crystal ball, and I could see that access would stay the same, and I don't think that it would. But forget, for, I'm not going to do any qualifiers. If I could look at my crystal ball and see that wildlife management would be as is viable and as productive in the future with no hunters, and that access would be as good that enforcement of wildlife regulations would be as good with no hunters and restocking depleted wildlife that happened through market hunting and stuff in the late 1800s and early 1900s, which is an ongoing process, would still be as vibrant. And I could be the only guy that hunts. I'd be a little bit tempted. But that's not how it's going to go. It's just not what happens. When they put elk back into Michigan and Pennsylvania and Kentucky, who do you think did that? When they put bighorns, and they're still working on putting bighorns back everywhere they belong, who do you think's doing that? PETA? No. Well, one thing I might add, too, and it's controversial, is you know the big auction tags and the big, as you call them, fat cats, you know, spending money. I call them that? Well, I've heard you say fat cats before. Not specifically those people. I was talking people. about Yanni because of his t-shirt company. Yeah, money falling out. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, that's a whole other controversial subject. Yeah. But the reality We've is... We've talked about this, though. Without that big money... Um, it goes right into the wildlife. It goes right into the wildlife. Yeah, and it's actually set... In a lot of states, it's set by law that, I don't know, like 95% of it goes right into habitat improvement. We've talked about that before, Jay. And, and I didn't... And I, I might have said fat cats, but I, I use that term endearingly. And it's, it's very relative. And in fact, a lot of that money um, for like sheep, when those tags are sold, like a sheep tag, it goes directly to sheep habitat specifically. That's how it not is in just Arizona. Wildlife Not just sheep, wildlife. So. I mean, specifically sheep. 
So that's it's a complicated so world, it boys is, and girls. Is hunter recruitment a scam? I don't think so. Absolutely not. I, here's the thing: I have had, I understand because I understand the frustration of of competition. So I get that sentiment. But I have had through my professional life the occasion to sit down and speak with some of the most productive conservationists that are alive today. All of them, and people that are well-meaning and have devoted their lives to wildlife, all of them have warned me about the possible threats of low hunter numbers, and they've all expressed to me that hunters need to continue to be as generous with the next generation as the previous generation was with us. It's not about us. It's about the future generation. One of these same guys. And if we're saying hunting is a wildlife management tool, I mean, if it's, if it, if we go away and it's not, then I mean, it's just, it doesn't make sense. No, it's not. It's going to be managed for, with a completely different set of criteria. Now, one of these guys said to me, uh, the writer, I was kind of, I was having, I was speaking around the edges of this concert conversation with uh, the conservationist Jim Poswitz, and he was relating to me. Uh, he was at a meeting, and it had to do with an access issue, opening roads into a roadless area. And Jim Poswitz is, you know, he's an older guy now. He's in his eighties, still very active, still hunts, but you know, he by his own admission, he's not the guy. He's not the hunter he was forty years ago when it comes to knocking around in the mountains. Um, he was saying he's at this thing and it was a comment period and the guy got up and it was the old, another older guy and he's like, I've been hunting in there my whole life and now I can't get in there and I have a right to get in there. There should be a road in there. And Jim Poslitz asked him, he says, why would you want to deny the experience to upcoming generations that you're sitting here telling me meant so much to you? It's like you had your fun. You know, you had your fun. It's time for new people to have some fun. I just don't, yeah. I get it. I get where they're all coming from. And I just feel that it's in our best interest to stay, to remain politically viable and to fund conservation groups and fund agencies. I recently had a conversation with a, um, animal ethicist who he's a vegan he's an animal activist an animal ethicist he's a professor teaches animal ethics we were talking about this and he was telling me how he thinks it's malarkey that hunters are conservationists and i was telling about i was just was used as a for instance like ducks unlimited how much money ducks unlimited members and the organization put that just all they're doing is buying imperiled wetlands and transferring them into the public trust. Can't argue with it. Guys go to banquets. They have a couple drinks. They start bidding on crazy stuff in auctions. It generates a bunch of money. And in other ways, outright donations. They love to hunt ducks. They belong to DU. They spend tons of money buying wetlands. That benefits ducks, aquatic invertebrates, fish, aquatic plants, the entire ecosystem. And he's like, he said, well, it's just too bad that their motivation has to be shooting ducks. I'm like, you know what? It's just that's how it is, dude. I don't really care what their motivation is. It inspires them. Let's say this. 
Hunting ducks inspires them to take money out of their pockets and preserve wetlands. I'm sorry. Again, PETA isn't buying wetlands. They're, they're worried about like horses in Central Park that, it, that that's bad, like, that, like it's really mean to horses. That's their understanding of wildlife politics. Anyone with half a brain knows that right now when they're talking about wildlife politics, they should be talking about wetlands, riparian areas. You know, it's just like you got to you got to have people who are on the ground, invested in wildlife, spending money, giving money, buying licenses, supporting state game agencies. Let's move on. Well, and that, that money from Pittman Robertson and all the sports and money doesn't just help game animals. I mean, like you said, it benefits so many other animals. Yeah, when Rocky are, Mountain yeah. Elk Foundation goes and puts together and they go and preserve a piece of elk habitat, the songbird, he he doesn't know and care that it was meant for elk. He's like, sweet, you know? And they're, and they're looking at stuff that is a limiting factor issue too, like a lot of focus on wintering habitat. Everything benefits. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's, how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know. They seem great to me. It's just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. 
Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. You pick one, Yanni. I like this one. How would you, how would you cook goat testicles? <laughs> I cook them in butter and put red hot on them. I call it buck nuts. Now you pick one, Yanni. <laughs> Do you eat the heart from the bear you killed, and is it good? When I keep bear hearts, I grind them up and put them in with bear sausage. There's something about psychologically, because I have a you know I'm like a conflicted bear guy. Uh, I like to hunt bears, and I've hunted bears a lot. I'll continue to hunt bears, but I really find that often when I'm looking at a bear and I'm fixing to go after it. I have this thing where I'm kind of torn between watching the bear and going after it. That's why I found for me that I like to hunt. Instead of hunting bears, I like to go out with guys who've never hunted bears and be with them when they get their first bear because there's nothing greater than your first bear. You know, A lot of animals just keep getting better and better. I just had my best mule deer hunt ever. I've been hunting mule deer a long time. I just had my best mule deer hunt ever. Every time I hunt mule deer, it's better and better and better. I love it more. With bears, my first bear will always be my most exciting bear. Um, so, yeah, like a bear heart, I don't know, man. I got like a little bit of a, um, I feel a little bit, this is hard to explain. It, it verges on a spiritual thing because I, I associate heart with, you know, like the like the spirit of something. I know I'm getting into some mystical business here. But no, I grind it up. I don't think I've ever sliced. The other night, I made Kevin Murphy's cathead biscuits and fried deer heart. The baby ate it. My wife ate it. We all loved it. But I've never just sliced up a bear's heart and ate it. Cathead? It's just biscuits. I don't know why they call them cathead biscuits. Why do they call them cathead biscuits? Because <laughs> that's like the size. <laughs> oh, just the size okay. of a cat's head. I didn't know that. I told my kids that those cat head biscuits they took to look at. <laughs> but my kids eat anything, man. They don't care. They don't even know. Like they don't even know about a lot of stuff that people eat, man. They just eat. Like I said, they're night. They're just eating deer heart. They don't even know about that. It's abnormal. Um, did you pick one? Yeah, I got another one here. This guy recently moved to Colorado has a cabin near Brackenridge. It's an area of some good elk hunting. He's getting all geared up to go hunt elk in September with his bow during the rut. But he spent as much time preparing for the butchering as he is for the hunt. And I think that's very smart of him. And he's asking if we have any tips. Because you don't want to mess it up. Yeah. So he just wants to have like his... his you don't want to be like that dude in, that, in, uh, in John Krakauer's book. 
right? <laughs> What's Into the wild. Yeah. Chris McCandless. Yeah. Shoots that moose and does the whole thing right. What's you guys' best? You know, I, I'm going to put this one to Jane Dark. You guys hunt in a hot state. Yeah. So what's your what's your just prep look like at home? I mean, he's probably done and set after years and years of doing it. Oh, is he talking about at his house or out in the woods? Oh, well, he's saying butchering. So I, I prepping to butcher an elk. I think he means in the field. Oh, that's what I think he means. Let's just let's take it both ways. All right, in the let's field. Let's say he means in the field. My biggest tip is don't underestimate how big that thing is be realistic about how far you're willing to go from your truck because for one person to move a bull elk three miles is a major undertaking and you need to have a solid plan put together about how many people you can get to help you are they on standby if they're not what's the weather if it's warm how quickly are you going to move four or 500 pounds of boneless meat in a head? So four or 500 pounds all combined. Because 100 pounds at first, you're like, oh, it's nothing. Three or four trips later, you are dying. So think about that. Yeah, that's huge, man. That list of people to call. Also... Get the guts out of it quick and open up the ball joints and the back legs because that's where stuff will sour fastest. But I think mainly, like, make a plan. Because when you walk up on it, you're not going to be prepared for what's laying there. You get a feeling, and I get it when I walk up on a moose, you get a feeling like, what have I done? Because you can't even roll it over. Yeah, and I would say first and foremost, you know, depending on his experience level, get the hide off of it. Mm-hmm. Get the hide off of it very first and foremost. Yeah, and the more I would think, the more you can break it down, the quicker it's going to cool off. Yep. So, but that's the thing is, like in Arizona, because tags are so tight, you guys always have the luxury of having a lot of buddies hunting with you. Well, in our country too, isn't extremely rough like Colorado. Most of the stuff, you know, we can get to fairly quickly. Um, yeah. There's a lot of roads in Arizona, so I mean, it's you, you guys have a downed game retrieval. Yeah, you like can, law with. A lot of places you can drive. A one-trip like deal. Yeah. They say you can go in oh. and get it and come out. Gotcha. But we don't, we're not hunting a lot of wilderness areas, too, You know, especially on the early hunts when it's so hot. So usually within a mile. Yeah, or, usually, I would know. say. I, I think that when I hear about guys having uh, meat spoil, and, I, and I'll remind you, it's illegal to let your meat spoil. Okay, You can't do something dumb and get five miles from your truck down in some hellhole and kill a bull, and then it gets up at 75 degrees, and you don't get out of there, and it rots, that's against the law, man. So it's not just about having, like, yummy steaks. It's like you have an obligation to get that animal out of the woods in edible form. You can get fined and have your hunting privileges revoked. You cannot waste meat. So it's good that you're thinking about it. I think just the fact that the dude's thinking about it means he's not going to have a problem. So I think it's the guys who never give it any thought and they go way too far. They don't have a plan. Their legs, whatever got problem. They haven't notified anybody about the situation. They're the ones that probably wind up. Someone who sits around and thinks about it for five minutes is probably in good shape. Suppress firearms. 
ethics of using suppressed firearms. I've started using a 300 BLK rifle with a suppressor for wild hog control on my deer lease. Hogs are destroying habitat, and the only cure is to reduce their numbers as much as possible. They eat all the meat. What are your thoughts on suppressed firearms? You know, I hunted in Scotland, which I hated, but I hunted in Scotland one time. And in Scotland, they couldn't believe that we hunt without suppressors because it's dangerous. They're like, I can't, they're like, I can't believe you're allowed to guide people without a suppressor and have them blowing their eardrums out. That was his take on it. But I was recently talking to a game warden, and we were talking about technologies in general, drones, other technological issues. We got on the subject of suppressors. He said to me, he said, one of my most effective tools is the gunshot. He's a big bow hunter. And when a game warden, like no matter what game warden's at work generally, but he tries to squeeze in a little uh, bow hunting. He said there's been several times he could recount in just recent years when he's sitting in his stand and hears a gunshot. He's like, that don't sound right. And heads over there. And sure enough, he said, getting calls from people. I heard a gunshot at night out in my field. He says it's a very effective tool. He also said the internet's a very effective tool as a game warden. But um, he said he didn't want to get into the politics of it. But he said, from the perspective of doing my job, I feel that I would be seriously handicapped by suppressors. But I also understand that blowing your eardrums out all the time isn't great. And I understand, too, that if you're trying to, like this guy's saying, control hogs, you can shoot a hell of a lot more hogs without them knowing what's happening. Do you think the suppressor gives you an unfair advantage on game? On shooting game? I, I don't mean, think so. I don't think it does. Because, you, I mean, how many animals you shoot? Yeah. And, I mean, you you shoot at something with a bow, and it usually, you shoot once, and it runs off. Yeah. I mean, no, I don't think it means that you're just going to be able to sit there and just set up camp and start, yeah. like, shooting bullets off at something. Um, I don't think that's really what's at issue. The only thing I see, and, and, and like I said, man, I'm very much, I, I, my tendency is to think that, my my tendency is to think that suppressors are not a negative. My one reservation is the issue about law is the issue about poaching and enforcement. That like this guy said, he said, I don't want to get into the politics of it. It's a valuable tool for me. I would almost think the the other way on the safety issue too, that if you don't know someone's shooting, that could be dangerous yeah. too. I mean, I don't know. I really want here's my thing. I wanna I would love to have a um I really want to suppress twenty two. Just for small game pot hunting while I'm big game hunting. I would be a a, a great dealer of small game. I mean, come on. A squirrel ninja. Because every time I'm out hunting big game, I'm like, ah, God, it's killing me. Rabbits everywhere, squirrels everywhere. I'd just be like <laughs> Dude, there'd be no stopping me. Yeah, that's a good one. Yanni Lay went on us. Oh, here's another good one. 
What's your take on coyote killing contests? One of the first magazine stories I ever did was I was it was in two thousand. Yeah, it was in two thousand. Man, it was right. I remember it was the first time I ever went to the state in New York, and I remember getting a car, taking a car service stupidly because of how expensive it was. I took a car service like from JFK or LaGuardia or something all the way out to Montauk, which is just insane. But I was in a hurry, and I remember seeing the 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 twin towers. And I remember very soon after seeing them, they fell. Um, in doing that, I went out there to cover a shark tournament um, where guys bet a ton of money. I was, I was doing a story in 2000 for outside on a Mako shark tournament called Mako Madness. And it was uh, guys bet a bunch of money who can kill the biggest Mako. And makos are valuable fish. They taste good. There's a market for them, right? It's a coveted fish, good fish. But the the thing had a thing where there's like the main money went to biggest shark. And makos are greatly depleted from due to not not rod and reel fishing, not recreational fishing, but they're depleted from pelagic longlining. Um, you know, mako shark reserves are maybe down seventy percent from the 1970s. So a lot of years now, the biggest shark winner isn't from a what we generally think of as big sharks. It's not from like a tiger. It's not from a muskie. But a lot of years, a guy will catch a big blue shark. Okay, Blue sharks are much more abundant. On average, not as big, but as the big coveted sharks go down, there's a good chance you might win the whole derby on a big blue. Blue sharks are not very popular table fare at all. I think they have about zero commercial value. And uh, every boat, you know, they'd all want to bring in, you're allowed to bring in like two sharks per boat. Everyone would always want to bring in a blue shark because why not? Because a blue shark might win. And they filled a dumpster full of blue sharks. No one wanted them. I mean, a dumpster full of blue sharks. As part of my story, I went and interviewed a writer who wrote a, a pretty profound book called Song for the Blue Ocean, a fisherman who wrote a, pe- a book about the depletion of the oceans. And he said something to me that he kind of articulated something that, that I had felt and thought about a lot out at this tournament. Is he was like, he just, and this is a fisherman, you know. I actually went shark fishing with him. Um, but he had a hard time with anything that puts a carnival atmosphere around the killing of animals. He had a difficult time with it. But just the idea of 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 making uh, a contest out of the the death of animals or having that be the motive the motivation. The issue with coyotes is much different with sharks because. They're kind of the opposite. As sharks are depleted from not being able to regulate international waters and unregulated pelagic longlining and all kinds of other stuff, coyotes are exploding everywhere. So it's just different. But that's just something to think about. Anyone? You know, on this ranch that you guys are going to go hunt tomorrow, um, tying it back into coyote contests, uh, there was a buck on the last day that we were trying to get 
and I hiked up this ridge and Dar was over on another ridge and I found this buck and he was rutting. He was just kind of walking and he went and he came off this kind of shady basin and he peeled off down there and then he was looking for a place to lay down. He laid down and I'm looking at him thinking, you shouldn't have done that. You know, you're 500 yards from us. It's the last day. You're the buck we're looking for. And he's right there. And Dar is already coming to me with the hunter. And I see a coyote coming perpendicular, sniffs the trail where the deer had just walked. I'm watching this whole thing. Came across this flat. He turns, turned the right way, sniffing, sniffs that big buck up, sniffs him right up, comes kind of peeling over a rock, and then, oop, that's not the way to go. Snuck around, jumped that buck up. And I watched that coyote chase that buck for over a mile as far as I could see out of my sight. And the buck was running full tilt, legs straight out. I would have thought he'd kind of turned and fought him. Yeah, yeah. And what's funny, on that same ridge two days before, we had seen a group of javelina with a pack of coyotes lined up and actually the javelina had babies too and the coyotes were just gang tackling those javelina and the javelina would be you know chomping their teeth and chasing the chasing the coyotes off but here's this big buck you'd think he'd turn and fight a coyote and he takes off running yeah if if people don't think that coyotes have a huge impact on our deer they're Sorely mistaken. I invite you, and I'm not. T- I'm not saying this because uh, from a pro coyote. I don't think coyotes have any problems. I think you can go do all the coyote killing contests you want. And you're still going to have coyotes around. I mean, it's like it's, you're not going to hurt the population. But I would invite you to go talk to people who are doing research right now about the issue of do coyotes actually kill a lot of deer? I think you'd be astounded how few they kill. And talk to Pat Durkin. Well, I the writer, the writer Pat Durkin. People can He's write about, about this widely. They can write about all they want. I saw it. I, I agree. I believe that, eat that. I deer. agree and believe you saw it, but I think, that, okay. And they were going to eat those javelina. Yep. But I, I. But here's what I'm saying, and I, I'm I'm not vested in this either way. I'm saying there's a lot of emerging evidence that coyote predation on deer is not what we thought it was ten years ago. I'd like to see it. Well, yeah, here's because thing. on fawns, black bears horrible. kill a hell of a lot more deer than was previously suspected. I'll tell you, in Arizona, we have a horrible problem with coyotes and antelope fawns. Yep. There, there was areas where I've heard there's that. no fawn recruitment because of the coyotes. Yeah. So a lot of the coyote contests I've seen in Arizona are up by like Seligman, Unit 10, where there's big antelope, and they're trying to really help the antelope come back. But you see the distinction I'm making. There's like what I'm talking about with this shark situation and what the shark situation was. and Definitely. The, how is it different I think with coyotes? Different. Where you said, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. you said like have coyotes are turning up in places they've never been. They're rapidly adapting to urban landscapes and suburban landscapes. And it's funny because I watched this anti-coyote hunting documentary one time. And the big thrust of the documentary was he was arguing the more coyotes you shoot, the more coyotes there will be. So, well, I was like, okay, so if you love coyotes so much, I think you'd want everybody to be out shooting them because then there's going to be even more of them. So I think that you'd be making a pro-coyote hunting video so that there's more coyotes. I don't, I'm not losing any sleep over coyotes, but. But would you say it's a management tool? I mean, could you say a coyote 
hunting contest could be used as a management tool. Totally, to, man. Yeah, I would. I don't I mean, have any problem with them. I was just bringing up – I just think the world's different than just a bunch of black and white issues. I was just bringing yeah. up a perspective, which I attributed to a man that I admire, a good writer. That's just his take on it. My take on coyote hunting contests, if you're operating within the limits of the law and following legal methods, I don't think that there's any risk right now anywhere that I know of of, of having – a dangerous depletion of coyotes. I think there's other large predators. That's the case, and this sec- and you're going to see some excellent podcast hosting because there was another guy asking through this transition I'm about ready to do. Because another guy was asking, how come so many hunters are unwilling to accept that we have large other large predators on the landscape, which is baffling to me too. Because I don't like to see any species driven to extinction or extirpation, which is like regional extinction. I think it is just, it's morally wrong. It's ecologically wrong. We have no business driving species to extirpation or extinction. I support the management and where necessary, the reintroduction of large predators on the landscape. And I think they should be managed on a state level and where there's traditional use patterns, I think they should be managed as game. Meaning, we have plenty of wolves in the Great Lakes, Upper Great Lakes. We have plenty of wolves in portions of the Rocky Mountains. If we can have stable populations of wolves and there's hunter interest, I feel that they should be hunted and managed the same way we manage elk. We don't want too many. We're not going to drive them to extinction. There's no risk of doing that with coyotes. At all. In fact, I think we have the opposite risk where we're really, coyotes are coming in because of man made reasons. And at the same time, they're coming in, they're really causing, and, and it, not to make it an academic issue about white tailed deer, like how many white tailed deer do they actually kill, they have a profound impact on, on, a, on a host of different species. It's just kind of a level, the, the argument I'm talking about with white tail is a lot of guys are now questioning, like, in areas where we've seen deer crash, is it really solely attributable to new populations of coyotes or other other factors at play? Um, we should have Pat Durkin on here to talk about it. Uh, a funny thing about wolves, I always think about wolves with guys who are adamantly opposed to any wolves being around. Why do they go hunt Alaska? If you can't have big game and wolves, why in the hell is everybody wanting to go to Alaska? And why is everybody like reading books about Lewis and Clark and how awesome it was all the animals Lewis and Clark ran into? Because one thing they damn sure ran into a lot of is wolves. So don't tell me that, that, that wolves and big game are mutually exclusive when everybody's lining up to go hunt the most wolf-infested state there ever was. Or they all want to go to Canada where wolves occupy, I don't know, 90-some percent of their native range. Or Alaska where they operate, occupy 95 or 99% of their native range if you can't have wolves and big game. It's just a lie. It's stupid. Pick one out, Yanni. You guys want to pick? You don't have a paper, so you can't pick one out. <laughs> Here, I'll pass this one off. I would ask you, are wolves, have they been hunted in Alaska? I mean, they've been there for a long time, but have they always been able to oh, be yeah. hunted? Oh, yeah, they're hunted. Well, they're trapped as fur bears, and then they're, they're, managed by, they're managed through culling, aerial, often aerial shooting. They manage wolves aggressively in Alaska. And how much they hammer them depends on how much you are, uh, how much they hammer them depends on what kind of impact they're having on caribou 
and moose because caribou and moose practically have like voter registration cards in Alaska. You can win and lose elections. Based, well, I mean, there's a lot of Western states. You can win and lose elections based on big game hunting, you know? Yeah, they hammer them hard where need be. But again, they're on the landscape. And I don't think anybody up there is saying how they ought to add a, like, I'm sure there's some radicals, some anti-wildlife people who are out there talking about how they ought to categorically remove them from the landscape. But I honestly, of all the guys I hang out with and hunt with, and I hunt with a lot, I don't actually hunt with any guys or socialize with any guys who are really saying that we should go and poison off all large predators so that there's none left. That's a radical, radical perspective that exists. I don't run into it very often. And the guys that I do run into it, where I do hear it from people, it's usually people who are just, I mean, just they're not that bright. Like they're not real smart at figuring out how stuff works. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's, how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. It's just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you can still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way, and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50 and it has airflow. So you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season... It was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized I didn't drink anything all day, and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. 
with three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. I got a good one. Trophy hunting, poaching, point creep. This is under hunting tactics. I don't even understand that question. Do they explain it? Do you feel the focus on trophy hunting slash inches within the hunting community of big game is leading to more poaching? Also, what ways could states like Utah, which manage heavily for trophy units, do away with current dilemmas facing a point system like Point Creep? Mm. Right, let me, I want you to answer, but I want to do a little translation. Um. What what point creep means is when you have a resource that is not big enough to support the demand on it, and I'm talking about big game, a resource of big game animals. It's not big enough to support unlimited hunting. You have to find some way to control access to the resource. So you have to look and you say, we got, let's say you got a thousand elk. You're comfortable removing ten percent of that population, let's say, because they'll reproduction will more than make up for that. Um, you get how many elk that allows you to kill. You got you know five thousand dudes that all want to go elk hunting. You do a lottery system and dish out tags, pull hats, uh, pull names out of a hat, and give people tags because everybody can't go. So we got to find a democratic way of selecting who can go. A guy keeps doing this for five years. He never draws a tag. He's like, man, I keep putting in. I never draw a tag. It's not fair because my buddy, he just put in for the first time and he drew a tag. So they come up with a system called bonus points where they it's basically like you're awarding people for their allegiance. And every year they're spending some amount of money to draw a coveted tag and you're giving them preference points or bonus points, basically awarding return customers. And the more years you put in, the, the higher your odds of drawing the tag go either every year you put in your name goes in the tag one the hat one more time or a certain number of the tags go to the people who've been trying to get the tag longest. Very fair system in my mind. But point creep comes from the fact that it used to, let's say it used to take on average five or six years to draw an elk tag in some unit. It might now be that guaranteed allotment of tags is going to guys who have 25 bonus points, meaning they've been putting in for a tag 25 years. So point creep is every year it seems to take more years to draw some of these coveted units. Trophy management. And so if you're behind, you're, you'll never you're, all, you're always staying behind. Yeah, you'll never catch up. Like if you're 50 and you decide to start putting in for a unit that the max point holders are, have 25 bonus points, you're kind of like a little bit late. But that <laughs> that would be true on a, a preference point, right? If yeah. you're behind. On a bonus point like Arizona, it's not necessarily true. Right. Because it increases your odds, yeah. but you still could, in theory, draw. Like yeah. Montana does no allocation to max point holders. What they do is they used to do 
each point you had threw your name in the hat that many times. So if I put in for three years and I filed a fourth-year application, my name's in the hat four times. Then what they did is they now square that number. So now my name's in the hat 16 times. Um, so different ways of doing that. And in some states take 50% of the tags, be it moose, goat, sheep, whatever. 50% of the tags will go to those individuals who've been applying the longest. 50% of the tags will be allocated in the general draw. So newbies have a chance. The old timers have an enhanced chance. And everyone does this a little bit different. And there's variations within states based on, um, Variations within states based on species and based on units. This guy's saying if Utah is so, sort of trying to maintain animal quality, like maintain that you have a good chance of killing a big bull because they're not shooting all the bulls, and you could open the doors up and let more guys shoot bulls and drive big size down so you don't have as many animals reaching maturity, but you got more guys having a chance to hunt. It just kind of depends on how productive the landscape is and, and a gross general and i'm gonna stop talking after this and let jay and Dar talk a gross generalization would be this arid places that have low population densities um ten, and not a lot of agriculture which tends to drive up animal numbers and they have a lot of aridity which tend to drive down animal numbers, those places tend to be much more conservative with tag allocation. And they tend to have places that are more conservative with tag allocation tend to have more intact age structures, meaning you have animals living long enough to die of old age. Um, there's a lot to be said for a system that allows animals to die of old age because you're replicating more of a natural ecosystem. But it does piss guys off because guys want to shoot stuff. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, throughout the West, there are certain states that guys that want to go hunt over-the-counter and more liberal tag systems can go and hunt. Colorado, Montana, Idaho. Idaho. And then there are states like New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, where, you know, you have older animals, more mature animals, you know, you have point creep. I don't know if you heard about Arizona's new change. No. So, and Dar, you can weigh in on this if I get, because sometimes I get sidetracked on this, but so 10% of the tags can go to non-residents. And before, uh, when you have for specific elk hunts, deer hunts, etc., the max point holders for that hunt, like Dar's son's 13B hunt, Okay, up to 10% could go to non-residents. 20% of those tags could go to or go to max point holders. Arizona switched it so that 5% of the non-resident tags go in the max point pool and the other 5% go into the random draw. So the max is, point pool for non-residents? No, that's the thing. No. I thought, really? I thought no. at first it would be a, another pool of, okay, everybody else non-residents. So they're limiting, they're further limiting non-residents. So what it's going to do is actually make more point creep because let's say you had 
18 points for that hunt that his son just drew and you're a non-resident, you have max points. Well, now they're taking half that amount of max point holders that are non-residents. But for the first time in in a long time since the draw system, you have four points, three points, or, you know, have no points. As a non-resident, it's the first time that you actually have a chance, mathematical chance, to draw that tag. Yep. You still are thrown into the general draw, okay, that's outside yep. of the 20% max point holders. The random. The random draws. And, but you actually have a chance. But, so you're in a, but if you got a lot of points, you're still in a stronger position in the you're random You're still draw. in a stronger position, but you're, if you're a non-resident, instead of taking 10... They only take five. So your point creep, you know, it may take you another double the double. amount of years that it would normally take because they're taking half half the tags, which creates what this guy's talking about. Yeah. That's point creep. For non-residents, it's going to creep. For residents, it's actually probably going to go down. Yeah, because now they're taking, taking 15 five more percent instead of 10. Instead of 10 out of that But it gives you a pool. shot to draw where a lot of these hunts, if you did not have max points... You did. You, there's no way you could draw. Yeah, I get emails from people all the time, and they're like, "I'd like to draw unit nine archery oak tag." And I say, "How many points do you have?" And they say, three. I say, "How old are you?" And they say, "You know, fifty-eight." I said, "Mathematically, there's no way that you will catch up." Well, now you I might. can tell them, put in for unit nine, because you could be one of the five percent that's just thrown out in the random draw that could actually draw. So I think Arizona's going to see application numbers go up. Definitely. Yeah. Because now. People that are behind actually have a chance. So I kind of like it. Might, of, might have been their end goal. I kind of yeah, like it. States definitely. make a lot of money. State game. I don't, I'm not talking They're bad a business. Money. State, they are state a business. agencies make a lot of money for that stuff we're talking about. Research, habitat improvement, enforcement. They make a lot of money by having drawings because they make money off unsuccessful applicants who are obligated to buy a license or pay a draw fee. So I don't think it's necessarily bad. No. Now, from this whole this whole issue, from a perspective of a guy like me, I have the luxury of I get to travel freely, willy nilly, all around the whole country hunting all the time. So when I look at it, I'm like, yeah, it's cool. You got like some states or high opportunity states. Any year you want, you can go elk hunt boar rifle in Montana. You can go elk hunt boar rifle in Colorado. You can go elk hunt boar rifle in Idaho. So there's that. Do that all the time. And then there's these dream states where I can apply, but I realize that I'm not the typical guy. Like my situation, not that I'm not the typical guy, but my, my situation isn't typical, my hunting situation. If you were living in a state like, let's say you're living in a state like Utah, and you're like, man, I want to shoot spike bulls and fill my freezer. I think that's more important than a guy fulfilling his dream to kill a giant bull. And I think there's a lot of validity to that perspective. I could see that it would be frustrating, but I think it's not just a matter of that you would open up the valve and let everybody start shooting all kinds of elk and expect that the picture's going to stay the same way. You're going to, the integrity in these areas that have lower densities, kind of more complex elk management issues going on, it's not as simple as you're just going to start killing more elk and everybody's going to be happier and everybody's going to kill more elk. It's, you're going to pay for it somewhere. All the Leopold in San County Almanac talked about when wildlife managers improve the pump, but they don't improve the well. Meaning, you know, the cistern holds 100 gallons. Just because you put in a bigger pump doesn't mean you got more water in the cistern. It's a limited resource. Yeah, so it's like 
a lot of times this stuff is the result of trying to manage a limited resource rather than them saying like, yeah, let's make a system where no one can hunt. But if you do get lucky to hunt, you'll get a giant. It's more complicated than that. I, I have an interesting Utah application uh, to this. A friend of mine drew a few years ago a one of the best limited entry Utah archery elk permits in Utah. And I thought, cool, I'll go with you. I'll go see how Utah elk hunting is. So he's, there's 16 permits in the whole unit, and it's a huge unit, 16 permits. We're thinking we got the whole place to ourselves. We show up there, and there is literally a quad on every road, every ridge. There's per- people everywhere. We're like, what the heck's going on? They have a spike in cow over-the-counter archery hunt at the same time in all those limited archery elk units. Yeah. So in Utah, just to answer this guy's question, in Utah specifically, you can go hunt cow or spike at the same time that the same guy that waited 25 years to draw, you just can't shoot a big bull. Yep. I remember my brother, when my brother lived in Washington State, he had the same issue. Like, he could go out and hunt spikes in units that were, like, the most coveted big bull units anywhere. He says all day long he's seeing giant bulls, can't find a spike. Then you hear the same story from somebody else. So, to further complicate the picture, some states, like Colorado, like, Colorado's the default go-to state for elk hunting. And it's, Colorado has twice as many elk as the, three times as many elk as the next largest elk holding state. So I'm screwing that up. They have tons of elk. It's no wonder they got a lot of tags but they're tight asses with their mule deer well and i think it's colorado, a trophy mule deer state and an opportunity elk state well in colorado in the past few years has gone to a lot more limited entry units and they've seen the quality rise as far as size of bulls and and you know yanni can attest to you know there's a handful of colorado units that have some pretty darn good size quality elk hunting and then of course it's known for the over-the-counter elk hunt. Yeah. I mean, it's the king. And the thing, too, when people hear, I find that a lot of guys, when they're thinking about management, get tripped up by, that they think that if you're growing big bucks or big bulls, that it somehow only benefits, like, trophy guys. But what about having just healthy herds? I got buddies that hunt in Wisconsin. When they were growing up, like, like, Doug Dern, who's been on the Meat Eater show, and, and I spent a lot of time with talking to him about wildlife issues. He was growing up. If you, fought, if you saw a deer track, you ran home and told your dad. Okay? There was nothing around. Deer finally started coming back, and as deer came back, there was a thing you never shot a doe. Because it was true. Deer were in recovery, and you're like, you wouldn't shoot a doe because you shoot a buck, you're killing one animal. You shoot a doe, you're shooting her. You're killing her and every offspring she's ever going to have. It's more complicated than that, but that's kind of true. Eventually, they got where deer were just absolutely everywhere. Better deer herds than they ever had. Amazing deer. And a lot of guys still couldn't get used to the fact of shooting does. I still run into old-timers all the time, particularly in the Midwest. They won't shoot a doe because those are the guys that grew up and they weren't deer. They love deer and deer hunting so much. They're like, man, you don't shoot does. Shoot bucks. And that's when you get in these situations that I grew up around where you'd sit there and you'd count 30, 40 does in a night and not see a single buck because everybody shot the first buck they saw. And if someone shot a two-and-a-half-year-old buck, you all thought you were seeing a giant. Okay? So is that really the kind of deer herd we want where you have, like, deer are born 
One to one. Just like people. There's people are slightly more females than males, but deers are basically born like buck doe, buck doe, buck doe. When you're sitting in the woods, that's not what you're seeing. I would argue that hunter recruitment, very first question, that if new hunters can go out and see a big rack, because there's just, I, I, I don't care who you are, there's something about a big rack, whether it's an elk, a sheep, a deer. Yeah, because you're if, seeing an animal that lived see, to be old. Man. If you could see a big rack, I think it would hook more people, more youngsters, more new hunters than if they went out and saw 40 does that all, quote unquote, look the same. Yeah. And they never saw a big mature buck. No, it's something magical about it. You grew up dreaming about it. I just don't, I, I think that like, if you go somewhere, if you got a place that is doing things well enough that you have animals dying of old age and you have breeding class animals actually breeding, like animals like with, with deer that are getting out to be four or five years of age and reproducing bull elk. I mean, it's like twice that, right? To be like, in a in a healthy herd that has its whole age demographic. I mean, what's a what's a bull a, like a real herd bull? I mean, eight, eight, eight years old. Eight. Yeah. Dull Six, sheep. Seven, eight. Nine. Dull sheep. Nine, ten. It just takes a lot of to get stuff that old. It takes a lot of not pulling the trigger. And it's like it's just healthy herds, man. Um, so I don't think that you know if you live in a state, it's like a dry state or whatever, and it's like low densities i don't think it's a sign that people are being tight with the purse strings because you got big animals running around you know i mean you should be you should view it as a good thing but i do acknowledge and i do think there is an issue of managing for opportunity now the state my state washington uh for no one understands why i think it you know, there's theories that it stems from an anti-hunting sentiment in parts of the game and fish agency. I don't know that that's true at all, but they're real tight. Like with their, their, their biologists are tighter with mountain goat tag allocation than anybody else. They have a higher threshold of what the population needs to be in order to award a tag. They award a lower percentage of tags you might wind up thinking like, listen, man, there's a lot of other states successfully managing mountain goats that are allocating a lot more mountain goat tags. What's going on? You know, are we utilizing the resource to full potential or is this something different happening here? Yeah, I think you can ask some questions. But in general, um, I think that that some programs that are managing for quality animals or let's say you're managing for healthy demographics in your herd, I don't think it's automatically a negative. And I don't think that the default management system should be to kill as many critters as you can possibly get away with killing without driving the population into the dirt. Johnny? What about the first part of that question? The inches causing the trophy hunters or leading to more poaching? Yeah. One, one is there more poaching now I don't know than there was. Poaching, but I think that if you talk to wardens and stuff, I think there's more people used to poach for the pot. I think a lot of guys poach for the bragging rights. More so than was going on when I was a little kid. I don't think there's as much poaching big bucks or bulls as there used to be. Is that right? Well, yeah, I, I'm talking totally out of my ass. I have no idea. I, I don't think there is, but I think there's a lot more people out there watching. I think when you have a lot more hunters with quality optics and you have 
more of our own police out there watching the fellow hunters and such. I just I don't hear about a lot of poaching. Yeah. Well, and with trail cameras and people taking pictures and video, I mean, a big buck gets shot. There's, I mean, other people know about it. You know. Did you hear about that dude? There's a dude that shot. Like Tennessee has much more liberal deer seasons than Kentucky. There's a guy that killed this giant. In he says he killed it in Tennessee. He brings it down to some big buck contest or some like like uh you know like the outdoor expo. And a guy from Kentucky happens to be at that outdoor expo, sees that buck's like that buck didn't die in that buck didn't die in Tennessee. I got trail cam pictures of that buck, and the buck was so unique, and the trail cam pictures were so conclusive. That guy wound up having his buck confiscated and got prosecuted off a dude's trail cam picture. He's like that buck never stepped foot near where you're saying you shot it. Yeah, I don't- which is interesting, man. It's like you know, technology kind of like you always want to. There's always all these negatives to technology and hunting, but in some ways you find these little uh, like helpful stories, hopeful stories. We got to chat with those wardens in uh, Kentucky a little bit there. Yeah. and They talked about very sophisticated trophy poaching rings. Right, but what was interesting to me is that I felt like if someone's going to go out of their way to go shoot a giant buck at night or however they do it on someone else's property and you know all that stuff, like there's got to be like a monetary drive because he's like, yeah, we broke up this giant poaching ring, and I'm like, well, what are they doing it for? Yeah, what are they are they, are they selling them for? He said, no, they're just a, all basically a bunch of yahoos that just want to have the bragging right. That's all it is. This dude also told me about a case they worked where a guy had put out a feeder, had a suppressor, had a red dot scope, and was just shooting deer, and as best as they could tell, he was just shooting them to shoot them. Like, not for trophy, not for me. He said it's just just a mentally ill, sick dude. What are your concluding thoughts, Jay? About not this subject, the whole damn deal. You got to buy them. <laughs> I got like two or three for free. Right now, I'm sporting my Alaska one. It's got a doll sheep on it. Is there a hunt to eat Arizona? I might just have a hunt to eat shirt for you boys in that duffel over there. The I hunt want- to eat Arizona should have a million dudes all hunting on one side. <laughs> a million dudes up glassing for one Glassing dude. guy on every point. <laughs> I want to say while I'm sitting here. Oh, that wasn't at- your concluding no, thought? I got one more. I want to say while I'm sitting here. I get a lot of people that really admire your show and the job you do producing the show and the benefit that people get from your show in that every show you can take something away. And to me, it's refreshing to hear people say that about your show. And I wanted to give kudos to you guys for you know doing what you do and how you do it. Um, I think your show is spectacular i think it stands out above all other shows and i just wanted to say that thanks man we'll give you a shirt for that okay <laughs> yeah you better give him a shirt now i give him a like shine it up before you give it to him fold it yeah and you're the, you're the same off camera as you are on camera which is cool too i mean thanks. you don't see that all the time in the a lot of the shows i would say what are your concluding thoughts i appreciate that that was kind i'm of, ready to go to mexico that's it that's i am it. too i can't Yanni, wait concluding thoughts he stole my concluding thought. I'm re- I'm ready to go do some haunting. My concluding thought is, uh, and I'm not just doing this because they had such nice compliments. If you, um, 
if you'd like, if you want to go hunt Gould's turkeys, or if you want to uh, go and hunt coos deer, you you might have to wait in line, but you will not have a more quality experience than if you go with Jandar. Jay, the problem with these guys is they're a little annoying. Here we go. About <laughs> they don't like to leave anything to chance. Is he going to bring up the light story again? I'm not going to tell the light story. <laughs> Jay earlier was talking about something happening very early, and I remember thinking he must be talking about 2 a.m. A lot of guys say very early, and it's like 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. Um, if you can handle the abuse of uh, of being around perfectionists, um, you will have – you might come home with complaints, but it won't be about your guides. Not hunting enough. And it won't be about not hunting enough, and it won't be about not being in a good spot. It might be that, I don't know, you were cold or your feet got blisters or you were bored or whatever kind of little problems you have. It won't be because you went to a bad spot and had a bad guide who didn't want to hunt. They like to watch animals and um, they observe animals. They're students of animals. And uh, if you, you, you can learn a lot from these guys for sure. And um, hunting ghouls, turkeys, it's like to see uh, birds out in the desert, like in these little, washes and stream valleys where everything's just like desert and it looks like a episode of wildly coyote and then there's these little like oases you know from springs and streams and just to watch turkeys kind of doing their thing down those little bottoms i mean it's just mesmerizing man it's just a turkey has great colors and if you want to see what like that in the most beautiful of settings it's like in a desert environment um it, it's amazing and coos deer is this your third trip down to Mexico for coos deer, right? Yeah. Yeah. What well, brings you I back? Think, what brings you back? What what about them do you like? I like looking through binoculars. Yeah. I just like watching big expanses and, and looking through binoculars and just observing. Same thing you guys like. I just like observing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I love walking around the woods too, you know. I just had a great time down in Kentucky following a squirrel dog through the woods, which is the noisiest thing you've ever been involved in. But um no, just the, the quiet, question. quiet observation and just watching and watching and watching. And then the thrill of realizing that there's a deer right where you've been staring all day long. Um, I have like, I have a decent game eye. Yanni has a better game eye than I have. And Yanni talks about how frustrating it is to watch for Kuzdi or Jandar. I feel like I see one, Yanni sees two, and he says you guys see 25. <laughs> <laughs> Your eye definitely gets trained to pick it definitely. up for sure. And it's a lot of it's proportion, I would say, just what size to look for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I learned, I, I never did the whole uh, binoculars on a tripod thing. Until I, the first time I ever did that was hunting coos deer. And um, you realize that when you start, seeing 200 yards away a bird you, if when you realize that you just saw like a bird wing 200 yards away you're like dude there's no way i would have ever seen freehand and i would never have caught that movement and then you realize that the tip of that deer's ear 
is like about that size. And a lot of times you're like, I just saw an ear. Or, hey, wait a minute, that piece of grass isn't grass. It just turned. It's like a tine. It's just its own thing, man. If you like puzzles and like visual stuff, you should try coos deer hunting. Um, but anyone's going to appreciate a Gould's hunt. I think you need to hunt a, quite a bit before you're really going to appreciate a coos deer hunt, I think. I think it's a connoisseur's thing. I think doll sheep is a connoisseur's game. I think coos deer is a connoisseur's thing. You have to love hunting and love all things about hunting and love being in the woods um, in order to love coos deer. Maybe I'm wrong. I wouldn't suggest it as a first hunt. It's definitely not like as much action as you're getting out of a turkey I would suggest hunt. a ghoul. Like if you'd been hunting one time before, I'd be like, dude, go on a ghoul's hunt, man. You have a blast. Um, all right. That was a long concluding thought. Thanks for tuning in. More next time. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now. And if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some meat eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I'll have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.